This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. On the Becoming Educated podcast today is Dr. Emma Kerr. Emma has 20 years of experience in teaching and currently works at a pupil referral unit and trains teachers with the Institute of Education. Emma has written several articles and blog posts on school leadership and the pressures of teaching and has recently completed a doctorate on teacher well-being and work-life balance at Middlesex University. Emma is also a co-host on the brilliant Clem and M podcast and the author of How to Survive in Teaching Without Imploding, Exploding or Walking Away, which is a thought-provoking book looking at the crisis in recruitment and retention in schools today. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the Becoming Educated podcast. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, I can assure you, Emma. Um, to kick us off, could you give us a whistle-stop tour of your career to date and how you came to, to write your book? Yes, of course. Um, so I started teaching um, at the ripe old age of 24 after doing the eternal student thing just putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, much to my parents' despair. Started my career in South Gloucestershire and quickly moved to London um, to what was proudly known as the lowest achieving school in Camden at the time. Uh, this was in the early 2000s when, um, if only we'd realised it, it was an absolute heyday of education in the UK with loads of funding, um, loads of support of teachers. It was a really exciting time to be teaching. Um, and uh, since then, I've worked in about six different schools. Um, I have worked as a senior leader, I have uh, been head of MFL, Modern Foreign Languages, and head of English. Um, and I've recently, uh, as of September last year, started what is somewhat pretentiously known as a portfolio career, where I'm still teaching, but I'm also doing lots of training of teachers, uh, writing and research. So the book itself, um, actually, it, it, uh, it didn't come out of my doctorate, which, which I, I tend to fudge history in my mind and, and look back. Back and think it came out of my doctorate but it didn't it actually came out of blogging um so i i joined twitter somewhat reluctantly as part of my research for my uh my doctorate which was on teaching and parenting and my husband who was always on twitter he's a journalist um used to drive me insane you know he'd, he'd we'd be watching game of thrones and rather than talking to me he would tweet his thoughts to somebody and be like i'm sitting here and he said um look you need to you need to join twitter you need to create a network to help you to build up your, your research base. Um, and that network quickly, completely um, helter-skeltered beyond my wildest expectations. Um, and I ended up with a, a, a response base of um, 1,600 teachers for my doctorate. Um, and, and, and at the same time, um, uh, I ended up with a network of support, which I couldn't possibly have imagined, which coincided actually with me having quite a difficult patch in my career when I was struggling and I really needed that support. So I was encouraged by those people to start blogging and I, I blogged anonymously to start with and then gradually moved into blogging as myself. And what it was it was actually almost relaxing. I would come home after a day and I, I would pick up on a particularly ish, particular issue, um, a difficult conversation or an aspect of the curriculum or, or something positive that had happened with a student and I would anonymize it carefully but then I would write about it. Um, and, and and it's one of those moments I remember distinctly. I was at standard doctor's appointment, sitting in the car park, about to go in, uh, and I opened my blog. And there was a message saying, um, uh, this is uh, Helen Diamond, uh, editor for Bloomsbury Education. Would you like to write a book? Because um, uh, I like your blog. Uh, and I, I did what any reasonable human would do and phoned my husband and said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Thanks for the wind up. <laughs> Um, and then we, we spent some time actually checking whether this Helen Diamond person was real. Uh, and it turned out she was. Um, and, and Bloomsbury Education were phenomenal. They just basi they basically said, you know, we like the way you write. You can write about anything you like. Um, and that's how I ended up writing the book. Uh, and it, it was partly a response to the fact that I was having a very difficult time in my career at the time. Um, and, 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 and actually quite therapeutic in that sense. Um, uh, and partly a celebration of a profession which I which I adore, which I absolutely love. Certainly, and as I said to you off here, that that celebration and the love of teaching certainly comes through. But there's also some some very interesting findings, and we're gonna we're gonna chat through them. And for, just to just to start off on that, were you surprised by some of the findings? Because for me, I'm particularly surprised that over half of your research participants wouldn't recommend teaching as a career. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really was. And I, I, I talk a lot about the Pollyanna approach, which I took to start with. The book was originally supposed to be purely a celebration of the profession with a brief acknowledgement of of some of the challenges that come alongside it. But actually very much about, you know, um, this is joyful. This is wonderful. This is fabulous. And and the negative examples are in the minority and it doesn't have to be like that. And um Again, again, my survey responses went completely crazy. And I had 3,604 people who responded to the survey. And what I found was that actually some of the data went completely against this quite optimistic and in retrospect, quite naive approach that I was taking to the research. Um, so it was everything from, yeah, the, the, the statistic that you just quoted on, on the proportion who'd actually recommend teaching through to the really high levels of um, um, teachers taking, uh, at, taking medication for depression and anxiety, teachers taking time off as a result of mental health uh, problems directly related to the role so this is not about actually something happening outside school but people actually being driven to illness by what was happening at work and therefore taking time off work which of course you know you think about the 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 knock-on effect of that in terms of cost to the school cost to the students cost to colleagues um, and I found myself having to completely reevaluate my initial perspective and actually I mean I'm I'm quite gullible so I, I remember writing that section on the challenges and I remember thinking about it was a bit like shining a torch into the darker corners of the profession and it really brought me down you know I mean there were there were there was an example in there which I, I spent quite a lot of time with my editor um, debating whether to keep in or not which is a woman who was forced to have a miscarriage whilst she was at work which sounds completely outlandish and bizarre um, but it was true I'd spoken to the woman herself uh, and she'd been in for a drama workshop on the Saturday and I think her miscarriage had begun on the Sunday and her head teacher basically said to her look if you were well enough to be in on Saturday you're well enough to be in on Monday and she was and it was just I mean it's horrific mm -hmm. um, but I left it in there after very careful thought and, and after the book was published somebody else contacted me to say actually I've been through the same thing so the levels the sheer levels of inhumanity inhumane treatment of teachers in some schools it, uh, I would say a significant minority of schools mm -hmm. really really shocked me and it felt like a huge actual re responsibility to, to, to get those out into the light before moving on to say actually this is how it can work. This is how it can be. This is how, how how school leaders, colleagues, the system can get it right. And then modeling those positive examples. So yes, my, my perspective completely did a full 180 mm -hmm. from my initial stance uh, of being very optimistic. No, certainly. And, and I can remember sharing that story with, with my good lady and, and it just, you just can't comprehend how what they would have went through during during that and being told that from that have that lack of compassion but as you say it is it is a minority these things so kind of moving on Emma is is why is teaching in crisis and and what are the key challenges in teaching today well that, that million dollar question um so so there are a number of different factors but i think um that it boils down to trust and autonomy of teachers. So ultimately, we operate in a system of high stakes accountability in England at the moment. And I say England specifically because actually that's where my area of expertise is and that's where most of my research is founded. So it's this um, culture of hyper accountability, excessive scrutiny, which um, belie a level of mistrust. So this, this, this manifests itself in many different ways from the example given above um, through to things like um, teachers being asked to apologize to colleagues for being off for cancer treatment. Uh, teachers asked a, a, a father, a new father who was asked to apologize to his colleagues for the inconvenience caused by his paternity leave. So it's that, that inhumanity, teachers treated like objects. It's also, um, from where I'm sitting, um, and 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 this does suit some teachers, but but the majority, I'd say, it doesn't suit that overly prescriptive approach to teaching. That you will you will do it in this way. You will greet the students at this angle to your classroom door. You will have this type of task on your board. Then you will do this type of task. Then you will do this, and you will mark in these three coloured pens. And I think that that excessively prescriptive approach 
actually completely deprives teachers of of any any creativity any opportunity to use the skills that they've built over years and years and years and 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 this whole idea of well-being and um you know happy teachers make better teachers which i do believe mm-hmm. happy teachers aren't lazy teachers happy teachers want to think they want to be creative they want to invent they want to respond to the needs of their students rather than being told you have to teach this six-part lesson and then this six-part lesson and then you have to be ready for this particular assessment by this particular date. Now, there's a level of that that's needed, obviously, otherwise we'd all be just doing our own thing and there'd be no consistency at all. Um, but it's what a head teacher called Helena Marsh talked about, which is consistency of outcome rather than consistency of approach. So actually, I think teachers have been deprived of a lot of basic day-to-day decisions um in which are in the interest of the students that they know best you know this idea that actually the person the professional in the classroom knows the needs of their students best of all so why are they not trusted so for me it comes down to trust it also comes down to which is particularly pertinent at the moment actually portrayals of teachers in the media um, and um, and perceptions of government or perceived the perceived view of government of teachers, mm-hmm. um, which even during the time of the writing of the book, two percent of the teachers who participated in the survey felt that they were respected by the government, um, and the same percentage, two percent, felt they were portrayed positively in the media. Now, if you look at some of the headlines in England over the last few weeks about lazy teachers mm-hmm. sitting at home, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, and that mantra of not good enough is something I really wanted to challenge. Uh, I had a former teacher contact me just after he left teaching um, and he said, I would have done anything if I wasn't treated as inherently not good enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what it comes down to, I think. Certainly, we need to have a more approach of a, an assumption of excellence and then if there are, if we drop below that, then we can discuss it. But we're right, we're professionals and, and often not trained to it. And it was interesting you said about the media because very early on in the, the crisis, there was a former Scottish head teacher that that came out and, and wrote about the same thing, that teachers are sitting at home doing nothing. And it's totally discrediting the, the huge amount of work that teachers are still doing. And, and, and you know what was really interesting about that is that actually where people are usually quite emotionally, I say people, I'm talking about my Twitter bubble, which I acknowledge is not representative of the profession at all, but people in general um, um, on in that bubble are genuinely, ge- generally quite resilient. So they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll either ignore it completely or they'll come back with a humorous and robust response and we'll all move on. But actually, I've got head teachers contacting me saying it's really, really, really getting to me because we are doing our best. We are doing our damnedest here. And head teachers in particular I do feel for at the moment because they haven't stopped they have not stopped they have not had a half term this half term they've not had an Easter holiday they had two days between Boris Johnson's announcement on the Wednesday um, in the middle of March when when schools closed through to the Monday to actually turn around their schools completely into a mixture of hubs for key worker children and vulnerable children and online learning and and then 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 to be told that they need to be brave as the daily mail said you know let our teachers be brave was just beyond the pale for so many when they're feeling particularly vulnerable yeah it certainly was and and as a teacher myself i can i can certainly it's certainly not great to hear when when that's what people people think of you and, and I can I remember getting phone calls from my, my mother early on in the process asking me what I was doing because the newspapers are saying saying that you're not doing anything I'm like I can assure you mother I I am I am working and I'm I'm just doing it from from my home and it's just different so it, it, I think it's important I've spoken to a few people that we talk up teaching more. Yes, I think, I think I think we might I think we might come to that a little bit later. I think on, we will so. come to that, and that's exactly a phrase I was going to use. Yeah, so <laughs> good crystal ball there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, um, kind of keeping on this kind of kind of idea of the before we get to that presenteeism is a problem way beyond teaching. And I know I know people that work in in different sectors. I've got a really good friend who who's struggling with this idea of how long he's staying at work and and trying to balance that with with a young family it can be quite challenging but why is it so prevalent in teaching and and what harm is that doing 
Well, just to pick up firstly on what you, you said about your friend, I think I, I, I've got many friends and a husband who are not in teaching. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that whilst our job can be hugely challenging, it is not the only challenging job on the planet. And I think sometimes, sometimes there can be a perception that uh, the the teacher is martyr and and we do the hardest job in the world uh, and some days it is some days it is but some days it isn't and other jobs are hard too mm-hmm. so presenteeism and teaching i think it's linked to um mistrust which i talked about earlier i think it's also linked to um it it's not not very um not very pithy but it's the it's the look i'm doing my job syndrome so not only have I taught this good lesson, but now I'm going to document it in a spreadsheet and share it with my department because it's not enough just to have taught the good lesson. It, I have to document everything. Not only have I generated this data by marking my students' work and feeding back to them, but I'm now going to color code it um, on a traffic traffic lit spreadsheet. Uh, you know, it's the, it's this look I'm doing my job um, because I think fundamentally as a profession we're quite insecure we're quite underconfident if you think about doctors gps if you ask them to do excessive paperwork they'll say no <laughs> they'll, they'll just vote with their feet they won't do it and i do think that how do i put this teachers are not always their own best friends they're not always their um, they're not always good to themselves. They're, they're not always very good at self-care. And I will admit that like most people who write about well-being, you know, I've been there. I've been there. I've been the burned out husk. That's how I write about it. <laughs> I've been the person leaving school at 10 o'clock. That's just ridiculous now I think about it. But, but you know, and not seeing my children for three days a week. Um, and sometimes, sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. So, um, how does it come about? I think it's linked to the school culture. I think that um, if you, uh, one of the things that, that uh, I often recommend to teachers is if you're looking to go and work in a school, go to the car park at five o'clock on a Friday and look at how many cars there are there. Um, because it, in the best schools, <laughs> it will be empty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's highly contagious, presenteeism. So if you, if, if, if your senior leaders are in school until 10 o'clock at night, there will be an implicit pressure for you to be doing the same. So I think it's really, really important that as senior leaders, we model that work-life balance. Now, of course, senior leaders are always gonna need to work very hard, but all teachers need to work very hard. And there are ways of doing that work. Um, and there's a lady called um, Dr. Karen Edge who did a project with the Institute of Education called Global City Leaders. And she talks about how leaders have to make their jobs look like one that other people might want to do. So if we just think about that for a moment, if if your senior leaders are working 80 hour weeks and scurrying around with huge bags of marking and just looking permanently stressed, are you as an aspiring and potentially brilliant senior leader going to look at them and want to do their job? No, you're not. What you're going to do is you're going to look at them and say, well, actually, I, and I've heard this before, actually, I don't want to be like you. <laughs> I just don't want to be like you. I want my life. Um, so what what we have to do as leaders is actually show that this job is doable. And if you take a leader like um, the head teacher Patrick Otley O'Connor, you know his his, his Twitter timeline is full of um, his turtle, his or tortoise. What I don't know what the difference. I've never known the difference. But you know it's, it's full of it's full of pictures of his son's head. It's full of it's full of um, anecdotes about his parents cycling. We know he's working hard as well. But we see, and you actually look at someone like Patrick, and you think actually maybe I could be a head teacher if it's possible to do it like that. Maybe I could. Mm-hmm. So I just it's the way our jobs are presented often that either puts people off or invites them to be brave and step up. Most of these structures and processes, it's around that idea of valuing what you can measure rather than measuring what you actually value. So it's about um, turning everything into a spreadsheet. That's That's the way I envision it anyway. Everything from the quality of your teachers, and I have heard of and known schools where there's actually a hierarchy of teachers in terms of quality. So that 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 good old traffic lighting system, <laughs> your your bright greens are the ones who are consistently brilliant all the time, right down to your purples who are the get them out now, um, or step up or get out, um, right through from from that kind of thing to um, to the idea of the support plan. I don't know if you have support plans up in up in Scotland, yeah. but the 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 work the mere work support plan are enough to make my blood run slightly cold because we, a support so i said we have this similar similar but we call it competence oh see well see, that's a little bit more honest 
because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So if you put someone on a support plan, essentially, not in all schools, but in many schools, it is it is a case of, right, you meet these targets or things are about to get a lot more serious and your job's under threat. So it, it's the, the terminology, the language mm -hmm. we use um, is actually incendiary at times. So the word, the, I mean, the language of schools is, is, is incredible, but the word support is just infinitely problematic uh, in schools. But but it, but it's, it's things like um, counting the number of homework set on a certain day. So you've got senior leaders who will spend hours and hours and hours analysing whether history homework was set on Tuesday week one and maths homework on Thursday week two. Nobody's actually analysing the quality of the homework or indeed whether the students are actually doing the flipping homework. <laughs> They're just counting the homeworks. Yeah, and and it and it's that it's that counting, and it it can't, and I I have some sympathy with it. It comes from that idea of impact. You've got to prove impact. You've got to you've got to prove everything because nothing is based on trust. So it's that vicious circle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but but you just end up um, counting, yeah, counting things that 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 just don't matter. And actually, yeah, we're in the middle of the COVID nineteen pandemic. When you actually think about some of those things we were counting, I found myself um, about, in fact, almost exactly this time last year, in a meeting, going through the data for year eleven students about to sit their GCSEs, who were sitting in a classroom with a cover teacher just down the corridor without me teaching them. <laughs> <laughs> and you just actually, you know, what, what? <laughs> um, uh, and, and we become so caught up in this data uh, that, that, that it just, it just doesn't matter. And when we think back from the perspective of this pandemic to the things that stressed us out and the things that upset us, it was things like those data meetings and those spreadsheets and, 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 you know, and those things just don't matter. So it's mm -hmm. the focus on things that don't matter, I think that's at the heart of the mistrust no I'd, I'd certainly agree i think some of those those data sweeps and and the, the need for data would actually rather than counting homework let's talk about whether the homework was actually enhancing learning and the quality yeah. you see so yeah there was a, a couple of things that you say in the book about people leave because of bad managers and what, what i really liked was you quoted vic goddard mm. and uh, vic goddard says that that leaders should always remember the five lesson day so why should all leaders remember that? Because mainstream teaching is the hardest job and the most important job there is in any school. Let's never, ever forget that. And you often hear people saying, well, senior leaders are really busy. You know, they won't have time to see me because they're really busy. Well, actually, I mean, I a couple of years ago, because of a change in timetable um, and a move from senior leadership back into middle leadership, I found myself back on a full timetable for, for two days of the week anyway. And I was teaching five lessons out of five one day and four lessons out of five the next and oh my god I mean I don't know I don't know about I don't know when the last time was that you did that it is exhausting you don't even have time for a wee it is absolutely relentless and the second because uh, schools are deeply hierarchical mm. um and and actually that I think is a problem um because because actually if you think about if you took a if you take a mainstream teacher think about a staff absence if you take a mainstream teacher out of school for a day the impact is potentially on oh 150 students um the impact on several colleagues who have to set the cover work supervise the cover work let the students in and out if you have a member of the senior leadership off for a day you can actually quite easily go through the whole day without particularly noticing they're not there unless they're someone who's particularly visible all of the time mm. so let's you know let's just remember that actually the hardest job in a school the most important job in the school is that of a main scale teacher and let's stop t talking in terms of moving up the ladder or getting a better job in senior leadership because actually without those people who are dedicated to be in the words of one of my colleagues the best teacher I can be you know, what are your, what are your career aspirations to be the best teacher I can be mm -hmm. and I think it's really important that we keep sight of that and those people who are the bread and butter of our schools. I would 100% agree. I was in a, in a conference the other week when people kept introducing themselves as just a teacher. Oh, oh yes. Like, when you take that just away, you mean you are a teacher. And you're right that without like without teachers, you wouldn't have schools because they, they are the most important people because they are the ones that d deliver and they deliver for the children. Yes, yes, yes. 
exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you. So we're gonna look into to more kind of issues, and then we're gonna try and spin it round to, to more positives. So before we before we spin it around a little bit, we, we're becoming more and more aware uh, as a nation of mental health issues. I watched a wonderful program with with Prince William and and football and mental health last night, and it was wonderful to see see these people talk about such issues. But is there a mental health crisis in teaching? Uh, yes, there's a huge mental health crisis in teaching. And sorry about this, like flicking noises in the background, because I can never remember numbers. So I'm, I'm just looking up some data for you. Um, but uh, yet yeah, there is a huge, huge mental health crisis in teaching. Now, again, let's remember that teaching isn't the only hard job there is. And I've got a great friend who's, who's a statistician. And she always says to me, OK, fine. But how does that compare to national? And I'm just finding this now. So 31% of teachers have taken medication for depression or anxiety in the last year. Now, I can't remember the national average exactly, but it's significantly higher. 54% of teachers would say they experienced depression directly related to the job. These are findings from my book. 82% would say they experienced anxiety directly related to the job. Now, if we move on to something a little bit more scientific and a little bit more rigorous, I don't know if you've come across um, the Education Support Partnership. Have you come across them? No, I haven't, no. Oh, they're brilliant. Right. So they are the only charity um, in England. I think they're England-based. They might be UK-based. I would need to check that. Um, They're the only charity um, working directly for educators in the UK. And they run an annual survey, uh, which started in 2018, on the mental health of teachers. Um, And the 2019 November one is just staggering reading. So you can find it by looking up Teacher Wellbeing Index Education Support Partnership. But it it is absolutely staggering. So you've got 72% of education professionals describe themselves as stressed. Just think about that for a second. It's almost three quarters. And we know what happens when people are stressed. We know what happens to performance and cortisol levels and everything else. I won't try and be a scientist. But but yeah, the working hours, 33% of school teachers work more than 51 hours a week on average. And we know that productivity goes down after 40 hours a week. 74% actually finding it really difficult to switch off and relax because we know that this job is a hungry job. The spillover is ridiculous. You can't leave it at school. Um, So, you know, and it goes on and on and on and on. You know, there there are huge numbers. Right. And 34% of education professionals have experienced a mental health issue in the last academic year. So, yes, the answer is we have a huge mental health crisis in teaching. Now, it'll be really interesting to see what happens as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I suspect in many cases that those levels of anxiety and stress will have been exacerbated. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I dare to hope, because I know we're moving on to positives as well, that actually this period will have given everybody, not just educators, but everybody a chance to really reflect on what matters and to maybe be a bit bolder. Because I should have said earlier that teachers can be their own worst enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, in the context of presenteeism, they really can. And we have more power than we think we do to say no, to say enough, to say, I'm going home now, um, uh, to say, my family comes first. Uh, and I wonder whether actually this period of being, for most of us, at home with our families or on our own has given us the chance to really think about what matters most. I certainly certainly hope so. And, and I think um, a lot of what you said there it is damning statistics and we really do need to, to, to look at take a hard look at what we do in our systems and our approaches to, to to make sure that we truly value teachers and I'm sure we'll come on to that a, a little bit later on so to spin it around in, into more positive a couple of more positive things around around your findings um, why do people choose to teach? Oh I mean I've having not been in a classroom now for oh, 11 weeks I'm really missing it you know it is 
it is so exciting, dynamic. It's that truism of it. It's never, never boring. Um, the students, they act, I mean, I learn as much from my students uh, as they do from me, if not more. You know, they act as a mirror, um, a mirror to you. Everything from, Miss, what are you wearing? <laughs> through to, Miss, are you all right? You look really stressed. Um, through to those moments of self-awareness that they <laughs> they force you into. So, um, I, yeah, I, I'm quite a high-octane teacher. I'm quite quite hyper quite intense and and it suits many students but not necessarily all and there was a student uh, let's call her Dina um and 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 she would we had a system where if Dina started to roll her eyes it meant that I needed to calm the heck down a bit um <laughs> and and just you know that they they just take the they, they will tell you it you know we don't well, we do need Ofsted let's not get into that now we do need Ofsted but you know if you want to know how successful a school or a teacher is ask the students because they will tell you it exactly as it is uh and they're 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 fiercely loyal you know even the the ones even or especially the ones who keep you awake at night because your best planned lesson ended up in bits on the floor literally um they're the ones who will who will cry when you leave Mm -hmm. um and and it's that thing of you know I've written about this extensively you know these students will never leave you I'm I'm still in touch I'm still in touch with with students who are now in their mid thirties um, and and you know still following them carefully and one contacted me and it's all highly confidential so far but when it when it comes out I'll name him and celebrate him but to say he's just he's just had a huge career breakthrough and won a significant prize um, which is going to define his career and you know the pride is real mm-hmm. the pride is real uh, just as when actually you find students who are really ex students who are really struggling you know that 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 empathy stays those relationships are are for life uh and and just the sheer the difference you make you know uh, uh, and i think we lose sight of that it doesn't i don't care how many homeworks you set last week um because actually your students will remember you for that moment when actually you noticed that they were a bit quieter than usual and, and held them back under the pretext of helping you with a job uh just to check in and then found out that actually they weren't all right at all and that you were and they found out you were someone safe they could talk to that that's the stuff they'll remember mm-hmm. um so so yeah it is i mean it's just the most wonderful job i can't imagine doing anything else i'd say that's the same with me i think if uh, if you were to ask my good lady the same question she would she would tell you she would espouse the same kind of things that i come home and, and tell her because some days you do come home and it, it's the worst day ever but most of the time it really is the most wonderful wonderful job i mean who else gets to spend time with hundreds and hundreds of young people that are going to shape our future it, it really is wonderful so thank you for for summarizing and sharing some of that um <laughs> So how important then is it that teachers realise that, that we're not and never alone, despite what we may think? See, there were a couple of phrases, a couple of truisms that came out of um, the book, the book and the doctor, actually, um, which have almost or, or almost started to feel like cliches. And, and one of them is you are not alone. Um, and I have an image in my head of a teacher I worked with once who really struggled in a challenging school and he used to lock his door and eat his lunch on his own in his classroom behind a locked door um and i just have this memory of of how devastatingly sad that was um and i i have been really lucky for the vast majority of my career really really lucky to work with like-minded people um with whom i could work hard play hard laugh hard cry hard if necessary um but but during the period when I really struggled in my job, I have never felt so lonely. I've never felt so isolated. I I I, I didn't feel trusted at work. Um, so I was on a, I didn't have anyone I could confide in there. I was so bored with myself sounding negative and miserable at home that I just more or less stopped talking, believe it or not. Even I'm capable of, of ceasing to talk. Um, and it was only when, and in my case, it was through Twitter, but it's, not, and I know Twitter's not everyone's cup of tea, but it was only when I reached out to a personal learning network and learned that actually it's not just me, that, that the reassurance of that is is phenomenal. And and going back to the story of the miscarriage, you know, it wasn't just her, but think about the positives too. You know, we've just bonded over it. You know, the the, the laughs, the the having something to look forward to every morning. You know, you're not if you if you love your job, you're not alone. 
and 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 just knowing that it's just human nature isn't it that sense of solidarity um is just in itself hugely comforting and then once you get beyond just knowing you're not alone you realize that actually many voices um have great power and you can work together and you can share things you can share strategies for coping if coping with workload you can share strategies for getting the hell out of there if the, if the context isn't right for you um so so for me it, it probably if i had to define one message which came out of the book it would be it would be that that however much you think you might be you really are not alone but i think it's important that we have those you've mentioned a professional learning network i think it's important that we have those and we create yeah. those throughout our career and we keep in touch with people even if it's in it doesn't have to be in the same school it can be people from all different schools because we're all experiencing the same things regardless of well yes we come from different contexts but but teaching's teaching everywhere yeah 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 exactly and, and also we, uh, it, you know and, and then this happens in very good schools as well you can get caught in your own little bubble and think that the way things are done in your school is the same as the way things are done everywhere and actually having I mean, these days I'm super privileged. I get to visit, well, in normal circumstances, I get to visit about six schools a week. Um, and, and they're each of them completely unique. So actually reaching out, however it is you do it, reaching out to other teachers and seeing how they do it and questioning and being curious and sharing uh, is is incredibly powerful. And I'd go as far as to say that actually not to do so is to the detriment of, of your own school community. Certainly, certainly. I think that's uh, it's wonderful that you get that opportunity and, and share that. And, and thank, thank you very much. Um, can I want to move on to celebrating success? And we spoke about this. I don't know. If it was, I think we spoke about this off here. Um, why should we celebrate successes more in teaching? Because we're not very good at it. <laughs> we're in teaching. We're very, very good at committing Harry Carry over the latest set of disastrous exam results or going over the EBI, the even better if, in a lesson. And we and we know that. It's the black dot in the middle of the piece of white paper, isn't it? If you can have a really good day, but if one person says one thing about you that's remotely critical, you will, you will take it home with you. But you have to acknowledge that and then consciously challenge it. I mean, how often in schools do we actually sit down and say, that lesson went really well. Now, hang on, let's take that apart. Why did that lesson go really well? What did I learn from it? What can I take from that? Where can I discuss it in my meeting with my mentor or my department meeting? You know, actually creating those opportunities. And I'm lucky enough to work with an amazing head teacher called Deborah Rutley mm -hmm. at the moment. And, and that's how she does her lesson observations. She goes in and she identifies, and it can be the tiniest thing or a huge thing, she identifies one thing that was brilliant about that lesson with, in every single case and says, right, let's take that apart. You know, let's look at what you did before, what, what you did during, what you did after, what was the impact of it, what have you got that you can share with other people. And, and the result of that is that actually people are begging to be observed because they love it. Because how often do we, do we, do we even just stop and say, actually, it was really nice to see you doing that when I popped in for the Pritt sticks um, or I learned this from you. You know, we, we, we often operate in this deficit model. Mm. Um, and, and the other reason why it's important is as someone who's trains new teachers um, and I'm very passionate about people coming into the profession. I love working with new teachers. We owe it to them. Um, it comes back to that. You know, I don't want to be like you. I had a uh, not not one of mine, thank goodness, but I met a student teacher who had left halfway through her training year because she looked at her mentor, how stressed and miserable and grumpy her mentor was, and she and she said, actually, this is not for me. If this is how it is, I don't want to do it. So we owe it to them. And we don't owe it to them to lie. You know, we, we can share the challenges. Mm -hmm. We can share the frustrations. We can swear behind the office door because they're adults too. But we also owe it to them to balance the negatives with the positive mm -hmm. we certainly do and it's like that idea of, of talking up teaching and i think we might come with that on one of our one of, one of the last questions that we, that we need to we need to share more of, of the great things that happen in, in teaching mm. because too many things in, in the media and, and with ourselves we discuss the negatives we discuss the exam results we discuss the the exclusion rates and so on but what about all the wonderful things there's there's hundreds of lessons go on in a school every day there must be 
hundreds and hundreds of outstanding things going on every single school day and no two school days school days are the same so i think it's important that we actually find that success and celebrate that yeah and it's shouting about it isn't it i mean there's a hashtag isn't there hashtag talk up teaching and people Mm -hmm. like ray snape the head teacher are brilliant at it and that doesn't mean burying the negatives but it does mean and, and I try to do this when I write. I try to balance every negative article with a positive one. But you know what? You know what's interesting, actually, that, that I write for the TES um, and um, my most read articles are always the, the quite negative ones. Always. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter how hard I try. And I, I do think there's something in human nature. Definitely. That, um, that negativity bias that we seem to have. Yes. Yes, exactly. So we spoke about it a little bit, a little bit earlier, but but teachers, in, including myself, I'm really particularly bad at this. My good lady will will very much attest to it. That I often find it hard to switch off. I mean, for me, education never stops. It just seems to keep on going. And and kind of, I'll, my my good lady always finds it strange that my boss will phone me at eight o'clock at night to discuss something that happened that day or tomorrow morning. It's like can't it wait till nine till eight o'clock when you're in tomorrow morning but it never seems to be able to wait so what strategies do such teachers use to separate school from work to being a present human being with with your family and your loved ones (laughs) well you won't be surprised to hear that I struggle with with this too and I have to constantly constantly keep it in check I think that's the first thing is to acknowledge that actually it's something you can never take for granted so if you think you've sussed it, you probably haven't. I know a few people who are very good at it, but not many. Um, secondly, you know, I can think back to a time when, similar to you, I fell asleep with my mobile phone next to my head. Now, this was a while ago. This wouldn't happen now. But one of our students had gone missing. She was missing for nearly a week. And her mother had my mobile number. Um, and, and, yeah, I lay awake all night. And and similarly, I remember my husband saying, look, really, is this is this how it should be I can see why you're doing this but um, so uh, you know I I often come back to a phrase that a colleague used when he was retiring actually Um, and he he described teaching as as a job just a job and it was quite controversial I use this in a lot of my training actually the question is teaching just a job and everyone inevitably says no 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 it's not Um, but but he, he went on to say look it's a wonderful job but it is a job and I think that we just have to remember that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing slightly to myself because I, I absolutely had this one sussed and then we went into lockdown. So before we went into lockdown, um, some of the key principles are around what Tom Bennett called uh, razor sharp compartmentalization. So work is for work, home is for home. You clear cutoffs. If you have to work at home, you have a specific time, a specific space where you do your work. But try and avoid working at home at all costs. Uh, Karen Edge, again, of Global City Leaders, talks about having um, one bag and keeping your work stuff where your work stuff should be and your home stuff where your home stuff should be. So you're not walking into school with bags full of baby wipes and hair clips um, and you're not walking home with piles and piles of marking that's just going to stare at you for the entire weekend and make you feel guilty. So that that absolute razor-sharp compartmentalization is key. But we are now most of us working at home so everything is in one place (laughs) so it is bloody difficult it's really difficult and i i've got a sign on the door basically saying keep out um and it's a miracle but but under normal circumstances by now i would have had at least three mummy will you open it um at least two attacks from the kitten yeah i mean it's uh, it's just and then then of course it's half term this week but during the working week you know mummy what's a subordinate clause was in the middle of one of my zoom meetings the other day um you know mummy what's a certification of oceans um and and (laughs) and it just you know what was the one the other day um Mummy, why do we have fingertips and not toe tips? <laughs> so, so, so. I mean, God, you know, the the thought of just actually being able to get in the car and go to work is is uh, <laughs> so appealing. But I, I think it does come back. I mean, what you're saying about taking that call at eight at night, I, I've been guilty of it too because it's it's a probably the only time you can find a quiet time to talk to each other. Um, B, it's a really important issue. But actually, I think we have to be quite strict with ourselves. If if it's health and safety, if it's life and death, then absolutely. Um, if it can wait, why not let it wait? Because 
actually like you i'm 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 married to a non-teacher um and i remember right early in my career sitting there with my pile of marking uh, in front of the tv and him saying to me look for goodness sake you can't you just watch television with me <laughs> and and it was fair enough actually mm. um so it's just keeping it constantly in check i think I think it certainly is because it is one of those those jobs that if you let it, it could really dominate dominate your dominate your life, and it's important that you have that. I like that idea of cut off points and razor sharp compartmentalization. So thank you. Um, yeah. my, my last question of of you before we move on to what I call my final three is that <laughs> towards the end of your book, you offer a few models that teachers can learn from. So what can we do to ensure that teaching is a respected profession and also one that people want to join? Well, I think it's quite a nice one to summarise what we said, actually. I mean, um, we we need to shout about the positives. Uh, we need to behave when we're in public forums, and this is really important, actually, in a way that is respectable, robust, um, kind, respectful, so actually, um, if we are challenging some of those negative headlines, just thinking about how we're doing it, um, and if we are disagreeing with one another, uh, just again, thinking about how we're going about that. Um, um, we, 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 need, we, we just, it really just comes back to shouting about the positives um, and making, making sure that those schools that are getting it right, and there are so many of them, are getting plenty of, traction airtime media attention you just 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 you, we're naturally quite humble as a profession i think mm -hmm. and we and we just need to be a little bit less humble and say actually you know look at the work the chartered college is doing um look at the work all these amazing head teachers are doing look at actually what we've achieved yeah i got um the other day i got a, a, a document from from my daughter's head teacher it was the most concise detailed document about how students could come back to school safely and I know her so I know the angst that's gone into it and it looks like months and months of work but I know for a fact she's pulled that together in a matter of days so also I suppose it comes back to thank her we had thank a teacher day here a couple of weeks ago um and taking the time again as a society we're not that good at that actually actually taking the time if someone's done a good job taking the time to say actually I think you're brilliant <laughs> I think you're amazing and encouraging others to do the same uh, it's, and it really is like a lot of the things I've written about in the book it's about the small things mm -hmm. it certainly is about about the small things and, and I couldn't agree with some of your things more I'm a I'm I'm a definite passionate believer that, that teaching is a wonderful profession and we need to do more to to get people into it because if we if we can attract the, the brightest and sharpest minds it can only benefit the young people of the future so thank you for yes. that we've come to the end of the, the interview section emma before we move into the final three but before we do that can you please share with the, the listeners where they can buy your book where they can hear more from you and, and interact with you perhaps on social media Yes, of course. So so the book is available on Amazon. Uh, if you look up How to Survive in Teaching, it's also available if you want to avoid Amazon um, on the Bloomsbury, um, Bloomsbury Education website. Um, they can find me most days, although I'm trying to have more Twitter breaks because it's very noisy at the moment, on um, on Twitter at those that can. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn um, as Dr. Emma Kell. Um, and I'm somewhere on Instagram, although I'm far too old um, to actually get the hang of how on earth it works. But I'm there. Uh, so feel free to come on and train me um so yes I, I would i would love to hear from you you can also find the clement m podcast which we are very proud of where we talk to all sorts of people outside teaching and within about what they feel they could teach schools and what schools taught them um so so you can find that on on um, most of the podcast platforms uh so yeah we'd love we'd love to hear from you Definitely, thank you and i would very much encourage listeners who haven't to listen to clement m particularly your episode with Adrian Bethune and, and Vic Goddard are called The New Normal. I really, really enjoyed that one and I've listened to it more than once. So thank you very much for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, can I also, you mentioned Adrian. Can I also mention that we've got an upcoming book, which Adrian and I have co-written, and it's called A Little Guide to Teacher Wellbeing and Self-Care. And it's coming out in September with Sage Education. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'll definitely look into that myself and, I, and I'm sure listeners will, will do the same. So thank you. Um, we're now on to, to what I call my final three. Emma, it's the questions that I ask all my guests towards the end of my podcast. And I, I love I love hearing what the, 
what what they say to, to these questions and, and all the different things and it, it points me in so many different directions. So the first question is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? See, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. There are all sorts of profound and academic texts I could mention, but actually I'm going to go with Bill Rogers. Um, do you know Bill Rogers who writes yeah. about behaviour? Mm-hmm. I have, that, um, one. I and have I... that one pretty close to me somewhere, somewhere on my desk. I just I, I read Bill Rogers when I was training to teach and he has stayed with me throughout and I quote him endlessly and the, the main quote that I always think of is you are always the winner even if it doesn't feel like it at the time mm-hmm. and it's that thing that I use a lot with well, with myself when I've had a bad lesson um, but also with, with with new and training teachers you know you can you can end a lesson just feeling as if someone's chewed you up and spat you out um, but actually you're still the adult you're still the one going home to a to a safe warm home you're you're going home to your financial relative financial security um and and it's just remembering that you're the grown-up in the classroom the other bill rogers image that that always stays with me is the is the picture of the child walking into the classroom with the with the world on his back Mm -hmm. and i always always think of that you know that it's just the basics really isn't it that, that we 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 expect our students to behave in a certain manner um and we expect them to to adhere to certain rules and and certain structures which are very rigid at times and actually they're carrying around an awful lot with them so so bill rogers gets my vote thank you very much and it is a is a wonderful book and it's i don't think it's just for for new teachers i think it can be very useful for, for even experienced teachers to sometimes dip back into some of the things that he says. So thank you very much. And my second question in my final three is, if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Remember the difference you make. Just remind yourself every single day of the difference you make. One of the activities I do with my teacher wellbeing sessions, which teachers find really, really, really difficult, I'm going to say, is to actually name three things they did in the last week which made a difference to another human being. Now, if we think about that, and, and, and all of the educators we know, there, there, there must be a choice of thousands, thousands from helping someone to tie up their shoelaces to listening to someone in distress. But, but people find it really, really hard to do that. So remember the difference you make. And, and if you use a journal or if, if you don't start using one, actually at the end of each week, write down three, three good things, three positive things that you achieved and keep those because not only will they not only will they make you feel good but they actually um they're they're really handy for your cv later on because actually when you look back and you're thinking about your impact and everything else um so yeah so three good things um either daily weekly whatever works for you but just remember the difference you make that's wonderful advice thank you emma my final question day to day is is one that really fascinates me in the different responses that i get but what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching in our classrooms Forgetting to put the child at the centre of every single decision. So getting caught up in the stuff that we can measure, but that we don't necessarily value, like all the things that we discussed above. So, so yeah, so for, forgetting to put the child at the centre, we forget to do that at our peril. Thank you. It brings us to the, to the end, Emma. I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank you so, so much for giving me so much of your time to, to chat for the podcast today. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.